So I'll never forget my first week on the job post-college graduation. I show up eager. I'm excited. I got a new suit. I got new shoes. Actually, the same shoes I have on this morning. They've just been resold a few times. New suit, new shoes. I'm all ready to go for my new job with my newly minted degree. And my friends from college were largely all in six to eight week training programs around the country, but not me. I had joined a smaller firm. There wasn't really a job description. There was no six to eight weeks of training. It was learn on the job, learn as you go. Well, day three of that first week, a partner in the office is sick, staff is tight, so they fly me up to San Francisco to handle a client meeting alone. So just picture that for a moment. Within minutes, I'm getting questioned in a large room about this client's stock portfolio. I have not seen it until that morning. I don't know much about it. I've never met the client. They ask questions like, how many of these stocks are in the S&P 500? I have no idea. I have no idea. I was being tested, and the less I obviously knew, the more I got tested. I, by the end, felt so humiliated, and I just wanted to get out of that room. And of course, I wasn't exactly set up for success in that meeting. I didn't come back super happy or pleased. I was worried we might even lose the client. Thankfully, we didn't. I had no idea, though, what I was supposed to do, and I hadn't been trained at all in that moment to do it. Now, I raise that because that's what can happen when we don't understand what our job description is and when we haven't been trained to do it. So all of us have gathered. We're here at church this morning some of us may be watching online. Question to you then, what is our job description? What should we be doing as a church? So members of, of UBC in particular, what is our mission? What is our task? What are we specifically commissioned by Jesus to do? How would you answer that question? Where might you go in the scriptures to answer that question? Now, I'm going to guess that at least some of us haven't thought a whole lot about that question. You come and gather, maybe 90 minutes, right, Sunday morning, and you give perhaps, and then you go about the rest of your week just as you came. Is that what our mission is, right? Kind of gather and give. Is that it? That doesn't sound super inspirational, does it? Okay, maybe your second cup of coffee has kicked in, even though we don't have onyx in the back anymore, and you're pointing to some of these words, glorifying, treasuring, reaching, you're saying, yeah, there it is. That's what we're called to do. But friend, what does that mean? What does that mean, glorifying, treasuring, reaching? Here are some ways Christians have answered that question of what the church is to do. First answer, quote, our mission is to partner with God and the redemption of God's creation. Now, while that sounds pretty exciting, partnering with God and the redemption of his creation of all the cosmos, wow, that's pretty cool. Or another author put it like this, our mission is to be an incarnational presence in our communities, working toward those things that bring fullness of life and opposing those things that steal life. Incarnational presence. Well, that sounds spiritual, right? That sounds pretty missional. Maybe that's what we should be about. Or another has put it like this. Our mission is to work for shalom so there would be justice and compassion in our communities. 
Now listen, it should go without saying, if you've got a cool Hebrew word like shalom in your mission statement, it's got to be right. Again, friend, what do you think? So is our mission to partner with God in renewing the cosmos and in restoring shalom, however you want to define that? Are we commissioned to change culture, to transform society's structures? Is that our job description here at UBC? That's the question I want us to spend a few minutes about thinking, thinking about this morning. What is the mission of the church? What exactly does God expect us to do? And that may sound like a particularly churchy kind of question. Right? Maybe you're tempted at this point to tune out. You're like, I'm just going to go check out the Tour de France, which in my opinion is much better than the NBA Finals, but that's for another time. Either way, recognize actually this question of what we're supposed to be doing, it's a pretty significant question. Because it will affect what we do as a church with our budget. Will we, for example, choose to fund another missionary or will we promote a campaign for fair labor laws? How you answer that question will affect what we do. What will we do with staffing? Will we have voter registration booths out in the foyer? What you understand our mission to be affects that. Even what we do in this gathering is affected by that question. So will we in this gathering prioritize the preached word or will we rather show preference to a presentation from the local chapter of the United Way? Again, all of that is guided by what we understand our mission to be. Now, if you're visiting this morning, awesome to have you, so grateful you're here. This is a bit unusual. So typically, if you come and sit in one of our services and observe, you'll, you'll hear what we call expositional preaching. And that simply is where we have a passage of scripture, and the point of the message is the point of the passage applied to the heart of the hearer. That's what we typically do. But every now and then, we do these one-off sermons called topical sermons, where we just take a particular question and maybe it's a question we think we need to consider more carefully. And then we say, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this particular topic? And that's what we're coming this morning. Think about this question, the mission of the church. And as we consider this question, I won't be able to answer all of your questions. Uh, I won't even, at times, be able to show all my work. So if you're a math teacher, I'm sorry. Sometimes I'm just going to have to give you the answer. And we can sort of fill it in a little bit later. But if you want to think more, the single best resource that I would suggest to you is a book by Greg Gilbert and Kevin DeYoung called What is the Mission of the Church? What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. So if you want to think more about that, I would encourage you to pick up that resource, What is the Mission of the Church, DeYoung and Gilbert. I find it to, on the whole, be the most balanced and thorough and biblical treatment of the question. Okay. So as we press forward in the conversation, I first, before we dive in, I want to point out two ditches that Christians can tend to fall into when they think about this kind of question. So two ditches, two kind of traps that if we're not looking for them, we can stumble upon. And the first is this. The first ditch we want to avoid is this. It's to be careful not to flatly equate God's mission with our mission. So that's ditch number one we want to avoid. We don't want to flatly equate God's mission in the world with our mission. In other words, we shouldn't assume that the mission of God equals the mission of the church. They're two sort of equal in, in circles. You can just put one on top of the other. We don't want to make that assumption, which may sound a little bit odd to say, because God's mission 
and our mission, well, shouldn't they at least be similar? Well, in many ways, they will be similar. And yet, we have to see from Scripture, there are certain things God does without us. He doesn't ask us, doesn't invite us to play. Some things he does alone, unilaterally, without us. Take, for example, just creation. Take salvation. Right? God wasn't looking for a helping hand when he formed the world. Jesus didn't need our moral support to finish the work of the cross. Right? God did that unilaterally on his own. We must see that. To state the obvious, it is also not our job to partner with God in slaying the wicked. It's not our job to partner with God in raising the dead. Again, this is what God does all by himself. And those are activities he doesn't invite us to play in. This is why I think we have to be especially careful as Christians when we speak of such things, for example, as God's kingdom. Because sometimes Christians can use language like, like we're building the kingdom or expanding the kingdom or extending the kingdom or by our actions we're ushering in the kingdom. We can use those kind of verbs as if we are partnering with God in all of these things. And again, it sounds pretty exciting. Big vision. But as we look at scripture, one of the things we see is such kind of active verbs are not used of us in partnering with God in his kingdom work. So for example, in Acts 1-6, the disciples don't say to Jesus, when will we together collectively restore the kingdom to Israel? No, that's not what the disciples say. The disciples say, Acts 1-6, they say to Jesus, when will you, Jesus, when will you restore the kingdom? They know that's actually, they're not part of that game. That's, that's what Jesus does. Or think of Revelation 21.5. Speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus declares, behold, I, Jesus says, I am making all things new. It's not, hey, I am partnering with you and waiting upon you to make all things new. Right? That's what Jesus himself does. So when it comes to the kingdom, for example, as individuals, we can receive it, we can inherit it, we can reject it, we can come to possess it, we can even proclaim it, but we don't establish it or usher it or build it. We're not the architects of it. The mission of God and the mission of the church aren't co-equal. That's the first thing I want us to see. It's, again, a ditch to avoid, second ditch to avoid. It's also important as we think about this that we don't equate Christian and the church. We don't want to equate sort of Christian and the church because sometimes we can use those terms synonymously as if they're the same, but actually we shouldn't use those terms synonymously for there are commands given to the church, the church as an institution like a local church, commands given to the church which actually aren't given to individual Christians and there are commands given to individual Christians that aren't commands given to the church. For example, individual Christians don't excommunicate one another. It would make for great reality TV, but it's not what we're called to do. We don't excommunicate one another. We also don't, as individual Christians, take the Lord's Supper on our own. Right? That's what 1 Corinthians 11, that's what we're to do when we gather together in churches. If you want to think about the excommunication part, you can go to Matthew 18, you can go to 1 Corinthians 5. Anyway, there are things the church is called to do that local Individual Christians, rather, aren't called to do. And yet, there are things that we're called to do as individual Christians 
that the church collectively, right, again, as an institution, is not called to do. So I'm called to love my neighbor, which means if I come home and I'm pulling into my driveway and I notice the neighbor's house next door is on fire, I don't stop, pick up my phone, and call the deacon of security. I don't call Ken Martin as deacon of buildings and grounds and say, hey, Ken, where are you? Why aren't you over here? The house next door is on fire. No, that's my neighbor. I go as an individual Christian and I meet the need of my neighbor because I'm called, according to scripture, to love my neighbor. And they're uniquely my neighbor, so it's a need I individually must meet. And of course, I am a married individual and I'm called to love my wife and to give of myself to my wife spiritually, emotionally. I'm called to give of myself physically to my wife, if you catch my drift. And just to point out the obvious, that's a unique call to me, to her. You all don't participate in that. Okay, I can tell by the chuckles you got what I meant. All right. Just to point out the obvious, commands to the individual Christian and commands given to the church won't always be the same. So with those ditches, keeping an eye out for both those ditches, what is our mission as a church? What is our job description? What are we sent to do? And again, where might you think of going to scriptures? Where might you start to answer that question? Maybe you'll think, okay, Old Testament. Maybe you'll think Abraham, Genesis 12, how God called Abraham to go and in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. We know from Galatians 3.9 that that blessing that comes to Abraham's offspring comes through the offspring, Jesus Christ, right? So that would be a place we could go. But I think given that the, the church was commissioned by Jesus and the church was commissioned with all the authority of Jesus, it's most natural to begin with the very teachings of Jesus, and one of the things we find in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, it's a little less clear in John, but it's really clear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is we actually see a variation of the same teaching, what we call the Great Commission. And we think of Matthew 28 in particular, but they're actually Great Commissions because you'll hear similar teaching again in Luke and in Mark as well. And the fact that each of these Gospels contain elements of the same teaching actually speaks to the, the prominence and the significance of this teaching. And even their placement. So if you think of the Great Commission and its placement in the various Gospels, it's always after Jesus' resurrection, but it's before his ascension. And one of the things we see in the Scriptures is that one's last words carry special significance and weight and what do we find but the Great Commission texts falling sort of as the, as the last words of Jesus, which means those texts demand unique attention of ours. So the most familiar one to us is probably Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there for a moment. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. You can see it also on the screen. If you don't happen to have a Bible, you can just look up, you can follow along. So Jesus has been raised, he's appeared to the disciples, and he says to them, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I just want you to notice three particular things about this teaching of Jesus. All right, so first, notice he empowers them with authority. So he empowers them with authority. As in, he says, all authority has been given unto me, heaven and earth to Jesus. But he's commissioning them to go out in his name and to preach in his name. To preach and to carry those same authoritative words. Right, so they have been empowered with authority. First thing to see. Second thing to see, they're also entrusted with a task. So they're empowered with authority. They're entrusted with a task. He entrusts them in particular in verse 18, the main, sort of the main command, the main verb, it's a little more obvious in the original language, but, but it's, it's make disciples, verse 18. That's the principal command. They're to make disciples. And the other verbs, right, going, baptizing, teaching, they're just, they're, those verbs are there to describe how they're to make those disciples. They're to make disciples by going to the nations. And when Jesus speaks of the nations, he's not referring to nation states, but ethnic people groups, right? We're to go to et- different ethnic people groups. We're to baptize them, which implies that we've declared or we've shared the gospel. The gospel has been preached. People have repented. They've, they've been forgiven of their sins, gathered into God's family. We're going to see this as we go through Acts, for example. And then he says, teaching them. That's the other thing to do, teaching them to observe, he says, all. Not just the highlights, you know, the highlight reel of my life. No, but all that I've commanded you. You're to teach all of that. So it's clear right there, Jesus is not simply interested in multiplying quick decisions, but Jesus wants mature disciples. He's after mature disciples. So notice they're empowered with authority. They're entrusted with a task, that principal task of making disciples. But thirdly, lastly there, they're encouraged with a promise. Encouraged with a promise. He says, I am with you always. To the end of the age. That's the promise of his presence through the promised Holy Spirit, which is going to come in the first chapters of Acts. So from this text, the mission of the church, simply put, is to make disciples. It's to make disciples. So if you're looking for a very simple answer, right there it is. The mission of the church is to make disciples. It's best not to complicate that. Just state it as clearly as Jesus states it. And friends, that shouldn't come as a big surprise to us because that's what Christ himself did. His whole earthly life that we read about in the Gospels is about making disciples, making followers of him. And that's what he commissioned his own disciples to do. It's what we're going to see them do later in the book of Acts. It's what Paul does as we walk and reread through his various epistles. The church's mission is disciple-making. Now, that's kind of like a mission statement in brief. And one of the things you'll come to find, for example, in the corporate world, is when you look at things like mission statements, they communicate purpose, which is helpful, but mission statements in the corporate world, well, they're also meant to differentiate them from their competitors. A mission state is often used to highlight what makes them and their product and their company or service, what makes it unique, what makes it compelling. So, here's one. To save people money so they can live better. And you guys recognize that? Walmart, there it is. Yeah, good. Hope you got that one. That's Walmart. To accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. That's Tesla. 
even if it didn't make it into the S&P this week, right? Still got a pretty cool, pretty cool uh, mission statement. Okay, here's another. To inspire humanity both in the air and on the ground. That's JetBlue. Which, if you think about it, it's pretty grandiose as a statement, isn't it? To inspire humanity on the air and on the ground. I mean, when was the last time you felt remotely inspired by air travel? But that aside, if a church is to be following the Bible, shouldn't all of our mission statements be the same? Shouldn't they be the same? I mean, we have the same Jesus. We are reading from the same Bible, which means we should have the very same purpose, which means we, in fact, probably shouldn't be trying to differentiate ourselves as we have a different product that we're trying to sell. Last time I checked, Jesus wasn't for sale, right? The gospel doesn't change from church to church. It's why, if you remember back to my candidating here five years ago, some of you were asking me, wow, kind of what's your vision? What's your mission for UBC? And I was a little allergic to that question, and I tried not to be too cynical or sort of poke too much. But I don't particularly care for that question because churches, they tend to lean on such mission statements And they need them only when they've forgotten what God has sent them to do. It's as if they're not going to open their Bibles, and so they're just going to try to come up with something extra creative. Or at worst, they will use such statements to promote how they have some kind of unique and special experience that they want to offer you. Or they're trying to win over more consumers Right? That's one of the reasons why I think it's just good to stick with the straight words of Jesus, not try to get too creative. That's enough of that soapbox. All right. Mission of the church, make disciples. That's what we should be doing, making disciples. Which means, friends, recognize a church's work is fundamentally about people. A church's work is fundamentally about people. And thus, ministry will largely be by people and for people. It's why when you look at church budgets, you're going to find a lot of resources invested in people because that is the ministry. That's what you're working toward. People remain the focus more than reforming structures or organizations or institutions. Sometimes people can talk about the mission of the church with concepts kind of of terms like social justice. And I don't, for one, particularly prefer that category, in part because it's not an explicit biblical category, and people mean all different kind of things by it, so then you have to offer caveats and explain what you are and are not saying and the rest. Uh, And if done carelessly, the implication, if one uses such expressions and terms, is that the job of the church is to solve all of society's malaises, right? All of her ills. That's what we're called to do. But here's the thing as we think about what it means to make disciples. And as you look at the scriptures and as you read through the New Testament and you watch that disciple-making work happen, you know, nowhere in the New Testament do we ever get the sense that the sort of judicial and political and economic systems of the Roman Empire, that those were the church's responsibility. That it was the church's responsibility. That it was actually the church's job to reform them. You know, Paul, interestingly, never commands. He never commands churches to use their resources to, for example, build aqueducts or repair them 
or throw themselves at failing schools or open up you know, job training programs for the unemployed at Rome. Paul doesn't command churches to do that. Individual Christians, great. That might be a wonderful way to love neighbor. Churches, you just don't find that. Can a church do it? Yeah, of course a church can do it. And it may be actually a wonderful thing for a church to do. It may see a great opportunity, and together it may decide to do it. But it's a different thing to say a church can do it than to say a church must do it. Does that mean that we as a church should be against cultural engagement? No, not at all. Does it mean that we're in any way anti-mercy ministry or we're now cold and indifferent to human misery? No, not at all. I mean, one of Jesus' greatest and most powerful parables is the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we're taught that we are not to place a limit on love, that when an immediate need exists and it's there before us, as individuals, we are to help meet that need, and we're not to let ethnicity or gender or politics or any other possible prejudice stop us. So if you see someone broken down on the side of the road and you start to slow down and pull over, but then you notice on the back of the car they've got that Darwin like eating the fish bumper sticker, you don't swerve back on, hit the gas and throw out a tract and say, good luck. No, you stop and you help them in need. And churches have a long history They have a long history of mercy ministry, meaning those those ministries meant to meet sort of the physical suffering of individuals, whether it's been providing medical care in hospitals, whether it's food, whether it's shelters. And I think this church in particular, right, we've had our own history with, with Second Mile. And that's a wonderful thing, especially as they understand when the goal of giving bread is to point That one in physical need who you're giving bread to, it's to point them to the bread of life. That's a wonderful thing for a church to be able to do. But we have to remember is that while it is good to relieve temporal suffering, what the church is uniquely called to do is relieve eternal suffering. That's what the church is uniquely called to do. Again, good to relieve temporal suffering. And churches will look at different ways of how they might best do that. But they are uniquely called to relieve eternal suffering. So how exactly does that happen? Well, I'm going to sort of tell you, and then we're going to look at scriptures to see how that unfolds. So how does the mission of the church to make disciples, how does that happen? Well, if you're looking sort of for a broad summary statement, here it is. So for those note takers, here you go. All right, the mission of the church is to make disciples, we've established that, by declaring, displaying, and defending the gospel. That's the mission of the church, as I understand it from Scripture. The mission of the church is to make disciples by declaring, displaying, and defending the gospel. So let's just walk through that. What does that look like practically? All right, so we said the mission of the church is to make disciples first by declaring the gospel, by declaring the gospel. Now, in the Old Testament, they don't really go to the nations. I mean, they're exiled, right? That can happen. But largely, it's more of a, it's not sort of a go and tell, it's a come and see. So the foreigner, the you know, sojourner, they can come and can be a part of things, It's more come and see. But you get to the New Testament, and it is more the sense of they're to go and tell. 
which is what Jesus sent the original 12 to do, even when he was still with them well before his crucifixion. Matthew 10, 6, we read in that first commissioning, he says, go, Jesus says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? Start there. And what does he say? Proclaim. Go and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he sent them with a message to proclaim. He sent them with a message. That was their principal duty. Preach and declare this message. That's what we saw with the Great Commission text. Right there to go make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Right, We've already talked about teaching, baptizing, and presuming. They've declared this message of repentance of God and forgiveness of sins. Consider what happens even at the start of the book of Acts. So the disciples are waiting. They're waiting for this promised Holy Spirit. Because they are promised by God that when the Spirit comes, we read they will receive power. And Jesus says, with the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8, they will be my witnesses to Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. So what does it look like for the disciples to be witnesses in the power of the Spirit? Well, in the book of Acts, to be a witness in the power of the Spirit, it looks like a whole lot of preaching. It's a whole lot of preaching. Acts is really just a book of a bunch of sermon manuscripts. You want to know what Peter preached? Look at Acts 2, sermon manuscript. When you want to know what Paul preached, well, you want to know what he preached in the Areopagus. You want to know what he preached in synagogues, lots of sermon manuscripts. You want to hear a really long one? You got Stephen, Acts 7, right? You just got sermons over and over and over through the book. So just to be a little more explicit, right? Acts 2, what does Peter do at Pentecost? He doesn't say, hey, listen, let's go plant some more trees in Jesus' name. No, he preaches a sermon. It's what he does in Acts 2. And we read after the sermon, we read that in many other ways, he bore witness to Jesus. Verbal witness, Acts 2.40. What did the new converts then do? Not surprisingly, they, Acts 2.42, devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship. Acts 3, Peter and John, they heal a man So they can bear witness, we read, Acts 3, to Christ who's able to heal much more than merely our physical bodies, Acts 3.15. Acts 4, because of their preaching, Peter is arrested. And he's charged, along with the others, not to preach. They're charged not to preach by the Jewish council. And at that moment of their arrest, do they say, hey guys, listen, it's time to stop and to rethink our whole mission strategy. This thing isn't working out so well. We gotta go do something other than preaching. It's not, it's not being received. Well, not at all. That's not the approach they take. Upon Peter's release in verse 20, we read that Peter boldly declared, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So he says, yeah, I know you don't want me to speak, but guess what? I'm gonna keep doing it, and I can't stop doing it. Acts 5, Peter again at the council And the council's enraged again at Peter, not because he was giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, that's not why they're mad, but because he was preaching that they needed to repent for the forgiveness of their sins or that they would perish. And when released, they don't stop, but we read instead that in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ, Acts 5.42. Acts 6, Stephen is seized not because of his political views, but because of his preaching. And as it is noted a moment ago, Acts 7, one long sermon that gets him stoned 
but they don't stop declaring. They keep preaching. The whole book of Acts is like that. You can just work your way through. Paul didn't go from town to town to raise awareness of endangered species, to combat food insecurity. He didn't come to show them sustainable farming techniques. All those things are great. They're fine in and of themselves. They may actually be an entree for the gospel, but that's not principally what Paul gave himself toward. His ministry was about the priority of the preached word. Everywhere he went, declaring in synagogues, right, in town halls, alongside rivers, he preached. Because that's what Jesus commanded him to do. That's what Lily read from us earlier in Acts 26. Recognize that is Paul's Great Commission passage. Acts 26, that's just Paul's version of Matthew 28. That's Jesus commissioning him to go, right? Jesus appeared to him, we read, for this purpose, that he go and be a servant and witness. And Paul says he obeyed how? By declaring to all that they should repent and turn to God, Acts 26, 20. And of course, how does the book of Acts end? But Paul in Rome Acts 28, 31, proclaiming. There's Paul declaring the kingdom of God and teaching, we read, about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Right, just if you look at the early church and the first decades of the early church, we see it in the book of Acts. You won't find the apostles prioritizing creation care, societal renewal, That's not their emphasis, which shouldn't surprise us because that actually wasn't Jesus' own emphasis. Does Jesus care for the sick and the poor? Absolutely. Did he meet their physical needs when he had opportunity? Yes, he did. But read the Gospels, and there's actually not a single example of Jesus going into a town or into a city with the express purpose of healing or casting out demons. Because Jesus says that's actually not why he came. He didn't come principally to meet our present physical need, but rather to deliver us from our eternal spiritual ruin. That's why he came. So in a In the beginning of Mark, there are a bunch of people that want to be healed by Jesus. He's healed some. And a bunch of people come and they want to be healed. And Jesus takes off. And the disciples are like, what are you doing? you got all these people. And he says, no, that's not why I came, he says, Mark 1. He came, he says, to preach, Mark 1.38, which is why he goes and leaves those people and actually doesn't heal them because he's got to preach elsewhere in other towns. He came. Not just to preach, Mark 1.38, but to call sinners, Mark 2.17. To seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. And lost, not meaning those like who misplaced their GPS, right? But those who are lost spiritually. It's why Paul's training of the next generation of workers. It's why when he's doing that, Paul doesn't give them strategies on how they can restore shalom by renewing urban parks. You can do that. That's a fine thing to do. That's not what Paul's principally about. What does he say to Timothy? In his final letter, sort of Paul's last words, what's he saying to Timothy, his protege? He's saying, preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, and with complete patience and teaching. 
right? Timothy is to do his best to present himself to God as one approved, as one who rightly handles what? The word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Friend, why do we see that pattern in Jesus' life, in the disciples' life, in Paul's life, what he calls to be in Timothy? Why that pattern of, of proclamation? It's because from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible says our fundamental need is to be delivered from the wrath of God by the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what must be declared. That's what must be proclaimed. The Bible is not principally concerned with peace between Jews and Palestinians, though we would want such peace. It's not about bringing an end to global sickness or global hunger. Instead, no, it's about how sinful rebels like you and like me, it's about how we can be restored and placed back into a right relationship with God. Because this relationship, it's not automatic. It doesn't just happen. We've severed that relationship. In our sin, we have broken that relationship with God. And that relationship won't be restored by us just working harder or by us understanding at least we're better than the next person. So if you've come today and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, the only hope that any of us have, the only hope that you have this morning is that God in his infinite kindness, sent his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross for sinners. And then he raised this Jesus from the grave as proof that on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for sin. And his resurrection is the proof that that debt has been paid in full and we don't have to pay it if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ. And that's the basic gospel message that was preached. Friend, that's the gospel message. If you're not a believer, you need to hear. That's why this church exists, to make disciples and to see that other people hear and can be made disciples as well. We don't try to shy away from it or hide it. We are about conversions because the Bible is about conversions. Because if there are no conversions, Heaven is a really lonely place. You need to be saved. We all need to be saved. And it comes through this gospel of the kingdom, this message of the resurrection of Christ. So to, just a quote from DeYoung and Gilbert, right, the mission of the church. The Bible story is not about us working with God to make the world right again. It's about God's work to make us right so that we can live with him again. That's a helpful summary. Just if you want to understand the Bible storyline, it is not about us working with God to make the world right again. It is about God's work to make us right so that we can live again with him. That's the message we're called to declare. So even better, I would say, than changing the world, we're called to bear witness to this world in word and in deed that a better world is coming. And that's what we're destined for. 
So it's why you're going to find here at UBC a priority upon the preached word. It's why the missionaries that we want to be sending, we want them to be more competent in preaching the word than they're competent in cross-cultural studies or competent in hosting youth sports camps, right? They've got to understand this word and be able to communicate it effectively. But friends, not only are we called to make disciples by declaring the gospel, so that's the first thing, make disciples by declaring the gospel, but a second thing, we make disciples by also displaying the gospel, by displaying the gospel. God has always intended his people, his covenant people, to live distinct, holy lives, right? Their corporate witness together, whether or not you're talking about Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament, their corporate witness together was broadcasting a message, right? As I've said, there to be a living advertisement. You want to know what God is like. Actually look in here which is a pretty astounding thing to say, but that's what God wants the world to better know him and to understand who he is and what he is like by the lives that his people lead. It's why he called Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in Exodus 19. Not because they're meant to be his incarnational presence in that sense, but because they are to be distinct in their living set apart by God and for God. That's what it was about. And in the new covenant, right, it's the church where that distinctive living takes place. Ephesians 3.10. Where does God make his wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Ephesians 3.10 says it's in the church, right? That's where that is displayed. So it's why Paul, for example, when you go through Acts, notice he didn't just preach, see some converts, start a small group and leave. No, he preached and gathered those converts into churches. He planted churches in every one of those missionary journeys. And then when he starts on new missionary journeys, what do you find him doing in Acts 15, Acts 16, Acts 18? He goes around strengthening those old churches, making sure that witness is strong and it's vibrant. And then he goes out and preaches to new places to establish new churches. Paul didn't establish revival organizations or schools or even Bible study groups. Those are great things. He established churches. He wrote to them. He trained up pastors for them because the Great Commission is fulfilled through what? Through church planting. That's how it happens. Friends, that's why we at UBC want to do the same because God intends to make himself known through our corporate witness, which means as an aside, if you're here this morning and you're actually not a member of a church, you're not a member of this institution God assigned to uniquely represent him to the world, If you're not a member of a church, it means you're not even really in the game. You're on the sidelines. You've like subbed yourself out. And the Bible would say, no, get in the game. Join a church. Be a part of that corporate witness. It's one of the reasons why we practice baptism, the Lord's Supper. And we do that, what? As a church. Because it's there that the gospel is also made visible. You hear it preached. It's made visible in baptism in the Lord's Supper. You know, sometimes even the attractional churches they can get a bad rap. Attractional churches can. But recognize God intends our gathering to be attractional in the best sense of the word. Not by flashy lights, not by slick programs, but by living beautiful, holy lives together. How does Jesus say the world will know who are his disciples? It's by the love they're called to have for one another. John 13, 34 and 35. 
We are called to do good to all. Yes, Galatians 6.10. But especially, Paul says, those of the household of faith. Which is why so much of the church support is for other Christians in need before even reaching out to the world in need. It's meant to be displayed in our unity in our diversity. So unity in diversity, 1 Corinthians 12, that's actually to display the gospel powerfully. So it's to be displayed by our, by our declaring. I mean, rather, we're to make disciples by declaring, by displaying in a lot of those ways. But just a final thing I want us to think about, by also defending the gospel. We also make disciples by declaring, displaying, and by defending the gospel. Right? We defend it, how? By being clear on it. Which is why in Galatians 1, Paul takes that church to the woodshed, right? Because they hadn't been clear on the gospel. And this is the work that local churches are uniquely called to do. They're uniquely called to do. This isn't what Jesus told the World Council of Churches there to do, defend the gospel. It's not what he said, hey, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, this is what you're to do. No, it's not what they're to do. It is what churches are to do. Blake quoted last week from 1 Timothy 3.15, where we read that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. Right? Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16, to the church. In other words, Jesus authorized the church, authorized the church to declare on behalf of him what is a gospel profession and who are gospel professors. That's what local churches do. Parachurch ministries don't do that. Families don't do that. Local churches alone declare what is a profession and who is a professor because Jesus alone authorized them to do it. And that's just what you see throughout the New Testament. The church alone is charged with the task of preserving the gospel throughout the ages. First Timothy, 1, 3, and 4, 2 Timothy 1, Titus 1, 9. You just keep going on with different passages. And it does this through faithfully preaching the gospel, by refuting false teaching, by maintaining doctrinal and moral purity amongst its members. Right? It's why we have a statement of faith and a church covenant. So we're clear on what this gospel is and what it is not and how it's to be displayed in our lives together. It's why we draw boundaries around baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because the Bible doesn't actually say all are welcome to those ordinances. Because there's only one way to God and that way is through Jesus Christ. So yes, all are welcome through Jesus Christ. And we have to put that caveat in. It's why when necessary we do that difficult and necessary work of church discipline as a congregation. Because while all are sinners, remember the church is for a subset of sinners. Repenting sinners. Okay, now at this point, you may be wearing out and you're thinking, this has been a rather wonky sermon, you know, like white paper kind of thing, a little teachy. Let me close by giving you three reasons why you should care. Let me close by giving you three reasons of why you should care. First, I think you should care because understanding the mission of the church directs our spiritual energies and our material resources. You should care because how you define this mission directs our spiritual energies and our material resources. So we as a church are coming up on budget season. And we're not the federal government. We don't just get to pretend like we have unlimited amounts of money. 
Okay, we can't do that. We have finite resources in terms of money, in terms of time, in terms of people, right? Finite resources. How do we deploy those resources most faithfully? How do we, for example, even think about remaining, uh, allocating the rest of our remaining 2019 budget overage? Well, it's to start, I think, by asking the basic question, will it help fulfill our central mission of making disciples by declaring, by displaying, and by defending the gospel? And if a ministry or a work is in line with that and it's, it's quite down the line of that central mission, then great. But the more a ministry or work is on the periphery of that, the less it's connected, well, probably the less attention it should receive. But I think there's a second, even more fundamental reason why we should care. And friend, that's because hell is real. That's because hell is real. Now, we laugh, and we can sometimes sneer at those, like, sandwich board crazies. You know, the guy's crazy hair, sandwich boards around their neck. They're always in the movies, right? People, we love to mock them for their preaching of hell and doom and the rest. But when you look at the preaching of John the Baptist, or you look at the preaching of Jesus, just think about the many parables of Jesus. Think about the parable of the talents, the parable of the tenants, the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the virgins. The preaching of those sandwich board crazies is often a lot closer to Jesus than what passes in many pulpits. Friends, the sobering truth is that hell is real and judgment is coming. And I fear it's no coincidence that those who focus most on cultural engagement are those who engage least with the doctrine of divine judgment. Just something you'll observe. I'm not the first one to observe this. Those who get most passionate about engaging in the culture, right, cultural engagement, tend to be those who also engage the least on the doctrine of divine judgment. But friends, if hell is real, it is more important that we learn how to die well than we teach people how to live comfortably. If hell is real... We must never think that alleviating earthly suffering is the most loving thing we can do. If hell is real, then evangelism and discipleship must not be marginalized and placed sort of on par with tasks like painting a school or producing a movie or promoting our favorite legislation. We must know as Christians there is something worse than death. So the, death refers, the Bible refers to death as our last enemy. The Bible doesn't say death is our greatest enemy. The Bible doesn't say death is the, most thing, the thing we should sort of fear most. In fact, there are lots of things we fear in this life the Bible says we shouldn't fear. So we're actually not to fear those who persecute us, Matthew 10, 26. We're not even to fear those or that which can kill us, Matthew 10, 28. So, you know, I recognize at present much of our nation, much of the world is held captive by by fear of this coronavirus, and we're largely being fed messages every single day that the worst possible thing that could happen to any of us is we could get the virus, and perhaps we'd be in that small percentage of people who die. 
That's presented as the worst possible thing that could happen to us. Friends, every one of us has a date with death and a vaccine won't change that. Now that's not a license to live foolishly. So you need to hear that clearly too. But as we saw last week, deep down, if we are in Christ, then we can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain. Now maybe if we sang a little bit more about the new heavens and the new earth, we'd remember this world is in fact not our home, that we are just pilgrims passing through headed to a better home. Again, there are lots of things we're told not to fear. But Jesus does say there is one whom we should fear. The one who can destroy, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's, in fact, what we should fear. There is something worse than death. And that is namely the eternal judgment of God. And there is something better than human flourishing, namely eternal and blessed joy with God. And we as Christians have to know it and we have to preach and declare that message. A third and final reason of why getting this mission right matters, it's because if we don't prioritize it, nobody else will. If we don't prioritize it, nobody else will. So Bill Gates has given over $40 billion, yes, you heard that right, $40 billion of his net worth to social, health, educational work in Africa and across the globe. He's recently pledged another $10 billion, calling this decade the decade of vaccines. But Bill Gates has not given a dollar to the IMB or to evangelical missions. And he won't. And we shouldn't expect him to. Oprah, Oxfam, right? The UN, they can all do laudable humanitarian work, but they don't spend any time or Reese's doing the most humanitarian thing we understand one can do, which is preach the gospel. They won't spend their time doing that. And the reality is the world will pat us on the back for how we work to combat, say, sex trafficking or hunger or how we work to reduce carbon emissions, right? All of those things, the world will pat us on the back and say, good job. And they'll love us for it. But if we're not careful, we'll work toward that aim and for that applause. And the danger is that we will marginalize the one thing that makes Christian mission Christian, because the greatest need of every human being is not going to be met by Habitat for Humanity. It's not going to be met by the WHO. It's not met by them. It's the church going as the church to make disciples by declaring, displaying, and defending the gospel. We have to keep the main thing the main thing because nobody else will. Friends, as a church, we can't right every wrong. We won't be able to meet every need. But we can point them to the one who is able to meet 
every need they have. And we can do that by making disciples, declaring, displaying, and defending the gospel as we go. Friends, will we give ourselves to that? Will that be our mission as a church? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray, and we pray that we would, we would take to heart the teaching of Scripture, that we reflect well on your word. Lord, we know all of us, we have our sinful proclivities, we have our tendencies, and there are certain teachings we like and certain teachings we don't. And some will think, ah, you know what, this has given me an excuse not really to love my neighbor, not to be worried about good works. And the Bible would condemn us for that. And there are going to be others who are tempted to do everything but that which is distinctly Christian for the ire of the world that will come upon them. And we pray that you would convict us of that as well. God, we pray that we would keep the main thing the main thing. In Jesus' name, amen.